Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to be with you in uh, in my stupor of my sleep this morning. Uh, I get a phone call from Mike Freeze, and and uh, my phone is vibrating on the nightstand next to me, and I see Mike Freeze's name is there, and I'm like, oh man, I hope everything's okay, and. Um, and then I say hello, and I'm still kind of in a fog, and, and Mike says, hey, listen, uh, Pastor Zach isn't feeling too well. Uh, can you come and preach? And I'm like, the first thing out of my mouth was, is there somebody else that you can call? <laughs> and it wasn't exactly what I intended to say. Uh, what I intended to say was, uh, uh, have you asked anyone else? Wanted to know where I, I, I fit there and if there was some sort of back door that I could exploit. And, uh, and the reality is, is that there's not. And, uh, you know, the, the awesome thing about preaching here at Grace Chapel so often over the last several years uh, has been that there have been several messages that I've already prepared and preached in different places. Uh, the, the downside to that is uh, all of those are gone. And so... Um, Last night, uh, Naomi and I, we were hanging out at the, uh, the ball field for, at the park, uh, at the festival, and we had invited uh, Pastor Ken Winters, a pastor of our church, Heritage Fellowship in Springfield, and, and his wife and their son, they were hanging out with us, and Ken is preaching this morning, and, and it's getting pretty close to 9 o'clock, and, uh, and Ken says, well, it's probably time for me to go, I've got to go prepare my sermon, and, and that's kind of the running joke for pastors, it's like, well, it's, you know, Saturday night, it's time to put together our Saturday night special. Well, the only thing worse than a Saturday night special is a Sunday morning special, and, uh, and, and that's what you're going to get today. And uh, may, may the Lord be our help, because uh, we, we need Him, um, and I think it'll be, it'll be good, uh, nevertheless. I've been in my own quiet time in just different uh, conversations, and even in a Bible study that, uh, that we've launched at City Hall in Springfield. Uh, on Tuesday, we made reference to 1 Kings 18, and uh, it's a powerful passage, and we'll spend the bulk of our time there, but I thought I, I would uh, just carve out maybe two or three minutes to give you an update on our Capital Ministries Bible study or, uh, that are taking place in the State House here in Ohio and some of the things that we're doing around the world, and I would ask that you be praying. October is a very full month for us. Uh, we have a ministry leaders training conference in Panama City, Panama, and then uh, two weeks later, we have another one scheduled in Cape Town, South Africa. And at this point, we have about 27 men on the continent of Africa who are looking to reach in to the political realm and lead Bible studies in their respective federal capitals. And then also in Latin America, we've got a number of men. I think our count is at 18 men who will be attending our training conference. And, uh, and we'll, we'll just need your help. Uh, to pray for those things, and we would ask that God would superintend all of those details for the, that conference. Uh, it was about a month ago, uh, Naomi and I attended a, uh, uh, a conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it was the ALEC conference, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and it's a conference for conservative state lawmakers nationally to descend. They have uh, actually three of these conferences annually, uh, the July conference is their big boy, and so there were about uh, four or five hundred state lawmakers from across the country who had descended into Atlanta um, just to hear various talking points and understand various policy positions, blah, blah, blah. Our intent in going there was to interact with lawmakers, uh, 
to do some evangelism and then recruit what we call ministry insiders, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who are serving as a state lawmaker, who would be willing to host a Bible study. And uh, the Lord was so faithful and kind to us. We have probably 10 solid leads of uh, men and women who are willing to, to be sponsors of Bible studies in respective states who don't have any identifiable Bible teaching ministry at their capital. And we're thrilled about that. One, one man in particular, he's from Alaska. He stopped by our, our booth and was wondering what we do as a ministry and had a chance to articulate our ministry paradigm and what we do uh, as Bible teachers in the state uh, capitals around the country and then uh, in federal capitals around the world. And I just made the statement to him. I said, you know, our, our state capitals are spiritually dark places that need gospel outposts in them. And it stopped him in his tracks. And he said, you're not kidding. He said, every time I'm in Juneau and I walk into our state capitol, you can feel the darkness in this place. And I said, well, Mike, I don't presume to know God's will for your life, but maybe he had you come to Atlanta not to learn policy, but to maybe consider being one of what we call a ministry insider, somebody who would sponsor a Bible study and allow a capital ministries person to come in and teach a Bible study. And I said, uh, would you pray about being our insider? He says, I, I don't need to pray about that. I'll, I'll be your insider. We had three other interactions with state lawmakers that were almost identical to that one in various states that we have not been able to launch ministries in. It was just a great, great time. But I also had a fantastic conversation with uh, Senator Peterson of Ohio, and uh, we at randomly um, met up at a snack table, and we were having some snacks in the afternoon, and, and uh, I didn't recognize him at first, and, I, and I, we all had these big lanyards with our names on there, and I, I said, uh, sir, where are you from? He goes, Ohio. Ohio, I'm from Ohio. And it was Senator Peterson, and I'm like, I know you, and he goes, I know you too, and uh, and I said, uh, you know, how are things going in your office? Are you looking to hire anyone? And, and what he didn't know is that earlier in the spring, I had had an interaction with uh, the chief of staff for the entire Senate, who uh, gives legal counsel and also oversees the hiring of legislative aides in the State House, particularly in the Senate. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I, 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 uh, uh, I said this to Ms. Uh, Senator Peterson, I said, I interacted with the chief of staff in the spring, and uh, I said, and I passed along a couple of resumes uh, to him, and Senator Peterson says, well, that's interesting, I, I just interviewed a young lady um, that I think we're pretty excited about, and I said, well, I, uh, he said, uh, was one of the resumes from a gal named Reagan? I said, Reagan Horman, yeah. That's right. He said, we just wrapped up uh, a, r a really good interview. It was over Zoom. We typically don't interview that way. And uh, he said, it was a great interview. And I said, well, you know, Reagan's older sister was a flower girl in our wedding, and my wife grew up in her church, and we know the family, really neat family, excited about what God's doing in her life, recent graduate of Liberty. She's got our stamp of approval. And he said, well, that's great. 
And uh, he said, I guess I better tell my other staffer that we need to extend Reagan an offer. And uh, Reagan started as a legislative aide uh, here about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and uh, was in our, our uh, Bible study, uh, our legislative aide and capital staff Bible study on Monday. And uh, we're really thrilled about what God's doing in her life and the addition that she'll be to our Bible study. And not only advancing good, solid policy at the State House, but to be uh, an agent of grace in a dark place. And so not only pray for Capital Ministries, but pray for Reagan and her new job and the important work that she'll be doing, doing there. Um, let's turn our attention to 1 Kings 18. Now, 1 Kings 18, um, of course, we find this in the Old Testament. It's a section of narrative, and it's really dangerous for a preacher to go into a narrative section of Scripture and just highlight a couple of passages and build a sermon around two or three verses. And so we're not going to take that tact this morning. We're going to allow God's Word to have a loud and as complete of a voice in our ears this morning, and may God be our help in understanding and applying and rightly dividing this truth. And I feel compelled to, to pray before we begin. Father, we would ask for your aid and your help this morning. Of course, we ask that you would uh, be with Pastor Zach and that you would allow him to get well I pray, Lord, that even now as we pray that he would sense your working in his body, that you would give him strength, that you would uh, rid his body of this virus or whatever is afflicting him, and that he would wake up later today feeling well, and we would give you praise for that. But Lord, it's with sobriety and very real sense of the responsibility that lies before us to handle your word well, and to listen well, and to apply well, and to live spirit-led lives. It's with that sense of deep responsibility we feel as we approach the text this morning. And we know that we need your help for that. And while many of us are accomplished and skilled and educated and able, apart from you, we are weak, and we need your help. And so we pray for that help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now the danger of coming to a familiar passage in Scripture is to take a mental vacation. Don't. Don't do that. Uh, Focus. Uh, Zero in on the text. Follow along as I read. And uh, and in a familiar passage, it's always good to maybe put a, if you're reading along in your device, maybe an app or something like that, highlight that section. Uh, Maybe there's something new that you're seeing with fresh eyes. Uh, If you've got a a hard copy of the Bible with you, put a star in the margin or underline something. Every time I come to the Word of God, something new comes out. And it's worth highlighting and then going back to later in the week. And may this morning be a catalyst for further learning and growth. Uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. 
Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him in his eye, Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, Obadiah said, Oh, how, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, <clears throat> as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you to, I don't know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab that he can't find you, well, he's going to kill me. Although your servant have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave, and I fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. He's going to kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of the Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people didn't answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am, I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, 
He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Now that's a long church service. Sorry, that's not in the text, just an observation. Morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, crying, or saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. He, well, either he's musing or he's relieving himself. He must be thinking of something important or he's going to the bathroom. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, Come, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as one could contain two seas of seed. And he put the, wor- the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it again. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I've done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. We'll pause there. Wow. Um, My daughters are attending a Christian school uh, this year. And, uh, of course, going to a Christian school, there's a Bible... Uh, class requirement and had a really good conversation with one of my daughters and she's reading through the gospels and she said to me dad uh, 
You know how John the Baptist died? He had his head cut off and served on a platter. That's crazy. I know, it's crazy, right? There are details in biblical narrative that we miss when we just zero in on two or three verses at a time. Now, it's entirely appropriate for the student of scriptures to zero in on two or three verses at a time. However, when we approach narrative sections of scripture, it's important that we read the whole section so that we can get a feel for what the section says. This isn't just information that we need to know. There's entire experiences that people walked in that bolster our faith, that communicate essential truth and theology that we base our lives on. There's some amazing things that are tucked in here. Amazing. Uh, there, there's some key players that show up in the text here. And, and obviously we'll just kind of do a, a short rundown of these key players. We saw Elijah show up. He's God's prophet to Ahab and the people of Israel. And we know that the function of the Old Testament prophet was to bring God's word to bear for the people. God had certain things that certain people needed to know. And the God of the universe has not left man to their own devices. Even wicked men and women. God, God is not a faraway God. The God of the Bible is invested and involved in the affairs of men and has been from the beginning. You see, it's a lie of our own making and the making of culture that says that God is a faraway God. He may have made things and left it to its own devices. That's the deist worldview. But many evangelicals who claim to know Christ as personal Lord and Savior they would say, yes, God came near by way of the gospel. But practically, in my everyday life, God might as well be far away because I'm a practical deist. I'm thankful for my salvation, but God, I am awesome. I am educated. I am successful. And I can handle this on my own until I can't. And at some point, every control freak falls apart. At some point. Whether it be through a nervous breakdown, a bankruptcy, death of a loved one, fill in the blank. God has a way of orchestrating the affairs of this world and this life to bring us all near to him. For God is not a faraway God. He knows us and loves us and cares for us. And he loves and cares for wicked people. God saw fit to send a prophet to Ahab. Ahab, you're wicked, man. Your father's wicked. It's not too late. It's not too late. Ahab could have said, hey, I've missed it. I've been wrong, I can, I'll change, I'll embrace God, I'll follow his commandments and his statutes. I've been doing this all wrong, and my dad's been doing it all wrong, but I'm willing to make a change. God's involvement in Ahab's life is one of grace and mercy as well. 
And when grace and mercy runs out, there seems to be judgment to follow. So, obviously we see Elijah, we see Obadiah, poor Obadiah, uh, who fears the Lord and has feared the Lord since his youth, is stuck working for an employer who's godless and wicked. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe your boss is a tyrant. You're like, well, hold on here, I'm self-employed. We need to have a talk with that man in the mirror. Maybe you're working in a workplace that is godless. I've been there. I've worked for tyrants. Very difficult people to get along with. Godless places. And here's Obadiah working in the kingdom of Ahab who has feared the Lord since his youth. Ahab and Jezebel have conspired to to remove the worship of the one true God from the culture of Israel, and Obadiah intervenes and saves a hundred of God's prophets. We see Jezebel, although so far she hasn't said anything in this text, Ahab's wicked wife, who's bound and determined to see the implementation of pagan worship in the in the land of Israel, amongst God's chosen people. We see the prophets of Baal. We see the people of Israel. But let us not miss the God of heaven and earth in his involvement here in the story. For this narrative isn't just about Elijah in the prophets of Baal. We see God's name mentioned over and over and over again. And various forms of God's name. And so, fun fact for you Bible study students, anytime in the Old Testament you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, that's a reference to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the promise-keeping God, the God who has spoken and never fails, the God who follows through on His word. God who keeps his promises. The dependable one. And then there is God, capital G-O-D, which in most cases, not all, but in most cases, either means Adonai or Elohim. Elohim is what is used here in this passage. Elohim means the strong and powerful God. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. And God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, the strong, powerful God. And when the people of Israel saw the altar consumed by fire, they said, and Yahweh is Elohim. The covenant-keeping God is the powerful God. Let's go backwards pull out a couple of observations from this text. Elijah meets with Obadiah. Obadiah is fearful. He doesn't like Elijah's plan. Elijah, what are you talking about, man? I've been, listen, I've been trying to do the right thing, and now you're going to ask me to do more right things? I'm going to put my neck on the line more so than what I've already done. I don't like it. And Elijah says, look, do what I'm telling you to do, and I'll show up 
and face off with Ahab. And Obadiah says, okay. Now, this is Obadiah, Ahab's servant. This is not Obadiah, the minor prophet later on who wrote Obadiah later on in the Bible. So don't confuse those two. This is a servant, primarily of the Lord, but working in Ahab's kingdom. Now, it's pretty obvious. We can infer that uh, Obadiah and Jezebel were not close personal friends. Otherwise, Jezebel would have known where Obadiah stands. But for whatever reason, the text says that Obadiah is a trusted advisor of Ahab. So much so that they're, they're setting out on this important task of finding food and water for the livestock that remains. One of the things that's not clear as we jump into chapter uh, 18, verse 1, to us at first glance is that there's a famine in the land. And in the chapter prior, Elijah has already told Ahab, Ahab, you're a wicked man. And in judgment of your wickedness, I'm praying that the Lord causes no rain to fall upon the land. And then in chapter 18, it says that the famine that struck and afflicted the land was most severe. Where? In Samaria. Where was Ahab's kingdom? Kingdom of the north. In Samaria. God was most fiercely judging the land where Ahab and Jezebel was. And for three years it had not rained. And it's important for us as we read this text to interpret rain as a means of God's grace. Now there was no physical rain in a literal sense. But we can infer that there was no grace from God extended on this land either. And Ahab is ticked off because he knows that there's no rain because of his own wickedness. He's he's upset. Let's fast forward into the story a little bit to the contest contest between Elijah and these prophets of Baal. Don't you love Old Testament trash talk? Man, I love it. I love it. Uh, Man, this is... uh, uh, There's a lot that I want to say here, but I'm going to be careful. I'm going to be mindful of time. But uh, I played soccer for Baptist Bible College, and uh, we played this uh, uh, school often, uh, Keystone College, which was just north of where our college was located in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. And Keystone um, uh, had a bunch of international players, uh, a lot of Africans that were on the team. And uh, we could hear them trash talk as we took the field, as we walked on. It's like, oh, here comes those Sunday school boys. And I was like, all right, it's on. Ah, this, this is going to be good. And, uh, and now, mind you, some of the, the players on our team had adopted this philosophy hey, as followers of Jesus, we can't play as hard and as physical as we should. And I'm like, guys, you're missing it. Uh, if, if they want to know and understand the gospel, we have to dominate them. <laughs> Physically, athletically, we have to impose ourselves on them. They have to, if we want the gospel to go forward here and we want to use this as a platform, we dominate them. And... Uh, I may have crossed the line a little bit that game. Uh, One of our center midfielders in the span of about 30 seconds was fouled by one of their defenders, like, blatantly. There was no attempt to go for the ball. Took took our guy down. And uh, Joe Luthi was his name, missionary kid from Japan. And after the third time, I marched over and I 
I grabbed that defender by his shirt, and I said, if you do that again, I'm going to break your leg. And uh, referee came over and gave me a yellow card and all that. And, uh, I, I knew I was going to get one. But I wanted to communicate to that guy that what he was doing was not okay. And he was going to get our best. A little bit of trash talk. Elijah shows up. Says, hey guys, you've been going at this for a few hours. Maybe your God's thinking about something important. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. You're just not very important to your God right now. Why don't you pick it up a notch? And the prophets of Baal, according to the text, they worked themselves into a frenzy. Hey, I want to tease out a word here that shows up in a couple places here in the text. Um, In verse 21, when Elijah is addressing the people who are gathered on Mount Carmel, he says, and Elijah came near to the people and he says, how long are you going to go on limping between two different opinions? This is a word that struck me different this time around. I don't know that I've ever taken notice of that word limping. How long are you going to go on limping between the two? And just a short word study here. This word limp shows up in the passage where David is extending grace to one of Jonathan's sons, his son Mephibosheth, who when uh, he was a child was being carried out of the palace by a maid. Uh, There was a moment of tension. I think there was an invasion of sorts and, and Mephibosheth is dropped The Bible said he was lame from birth. He couldn't walk. And that was the word that Elijah is using here. How long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? How long? Oh boy, doesn't this strike home deep? Friends, are we guilty of limping between two different opinions? You see, in this moment right here, it's really easy to say, I embrace the truth of God's Word. It is holy. It's inspired. It's authoritative in my life. But sometime around Tuesday, or even Monday afternoon, the things that you believe go right out the window. And you begin living by the parameters of being that practical deist, or atheist, or agnostic. You begin to incorporate all of the worldviews of all those people that you're scrolling through on your social media feed. And you're adopting all of the principles of TikTok, Facebook, YouTube shorts. It's all part of how you interact with people. How long are you going to limp between two different opinions? Because it's real easy for what we believe to not reflect in how we behave. And for many of us, there's a chasm between the two. It's the essence of our sanctification, though, in many ways. That as we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and as we progress in our knowledge of Him, and we pursuing holiness and righteousness in our life, that chasm becomes closer and closer all the time. Now finally, in the future, when Jesus comes back and we have our glorified bodies What we believe and how we behave will be forever linked. But until then, we struggle. How much are you struggling? 
How long will you keep on struggling without the Spirit's aid and help? For the Lord has said that he would give to us a helper, did he not? One who would aid us in this life and our sanctification. This word limp shows up again as it uh, describes how the prophets of Baal were moving around their altar. It says they were limping around the altar. Uh, This word also means skip. So it can mean lame or crippled, or it can mean skip. And so the prophets of Baal are literally, literally skipping around their altar. And in their frenzy, they're skipping and cutting and hurting and mutilating their flesh. What an awful thing. One of the awful parts of youth culture right now are young people who are harming themselves because they can't can't reconcile the the pain that they feel in this broken world. And they find relief in harming themselves in a weird, convoluted way. And the lie of the evil one is embraced and the truth of God is rejected. If I were to give... Boy, there's so much more that I want to say about this text. But if I were to give this passage or this sermon a a title, it would simply be Trust and Obey. I think that's the message that Elijah was bringing to bear to the people of Israel. Would you trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And would you obey the commandments that he set before us? Ahab, you wicked man. Jezebel, you wicked woman. Turn from your wicked... No, not going to do it. And in spectacular fashion, on top of Mount Carmel, which was strategically placed, by the way, so it's 30 miles from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Carmel mountain range, and it's a series of rounded peaks. And on top of this mountain, with the distant sea visible to all who were there, And mind you, just south of the Carmel Range is the Valley of Megiddo, which, by the way, for you students of Revelation, where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. But up on top of the mountain, on Mount Carmel, a previous battle takes place, where once and for all, for the people of Israel on that day, they came to know that Yahweh is Elohim. He is the covenant-keeping God and he's strong, and he's powerful. Now, when it was Elijah's turn to uh, offer the sacrifice, the text says that he rebuilt something. There seems to be an indication that there was a previous altar that was there, and I think that's spiritually indicative, or metaphorical for us, anyway. For some of us, our lives are in spiritual ruin and need to be rebuilt. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that none of us are too far gone to be rebuilt with the Spirit's aid. And you might be tempted this morning to say, man, if you only knew, I know. We know. Collectively, we know the trappings of this world and the temptations that we walk in. 
But friend, you are not too far gone for the Spirit to put the pieces back together again. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God loves us and has made us whole and given us a new identity in Christ, assured a place in heaven for those who trust and believe in Him, is a message that puts the pieces of broken lives back together again. If we were to march on in chapter 19, we would see that after this incredible victory that God gives to Elijah, word gets back to Jezebel what had happened on Mount Carmel, and she wants to kill Elijah, and Elijah, instead of wading into the battle, he runs and he flees. And we see Elijah overtaken by depression, fear, anxiety, loneliness, all of these things. And what Elijah does is he takes his mind, he takes his eyes off of God and he places them on his circumstances. And then the circumstances tell him how he ought to feel and behave. The application coming out of there is, friends, we have to view our circumstances through the lens of God. Not viewing God through the lens of our circumstances. For if we view our circumstances without the lens of God, our theology changes from moment to moment. And we create a God of our own making, not the God of the Bible. Boy, there's a lot for us to take from here. Hopefully this just whet your appetite. Hopefully this will drive you into the text this week. Hopefully that you will see, by way of studying this awesome passage, Yahweh is Elohim. And he's worth our trust. And he's worth our obedience. Um, let's pray and ask for God's help. And then we'll approach the Lord's table here together. Father, we're thankful for this passage. Lord, I, I just pray that you would Help us to glean more truth. There's so much more in here that we could say and dig out and mine out and apply. Lord, if the final takeaway of this passage is just to trust and obey, I believe it to be enough. But Lord, apart from you, we're unable to. We can't just trust and obey. Lord, our, our depravity runs strong in us. Our flesh is weak. I pray that your spirit would be strong in us. Lord, I pray for those who are in this place who are struggling, who might be tempted to say that their lives are too broken, that the pieces are too many to be put back together. Lord, would you reacquaint them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? the truth that you run hard after sinners and that those who repent and come to you may have life and have it abundant. Lord, be our help today. Help us to resist the idols, false gods of our own making. Help us to trust and obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.